All right, well, we're now in part three of the cross series. Ordinarily, when we're preaching here on Sunday mornings, we are working through texts. Um, we're doing expositional preaching. We work through a section of the Bible. We were in Mark, and we hit Mark chapter 15, and Mark chapter 15 spend some time describing the crucifixion of Christ. And it was such a striking time for me personally, just studying it, that I just felt that we should pause and study the cross some more. And doing that, we've now, uh, we're in our third week of a series on the cross. Um, last two weeks, we were looking at different facets of the cross. We looked at the cross and God's redemptive plan and how it plays a role right there in the center of what God is doing in His creation. Last week, we looked at the cross and how it uh, shows us who we are. We are, we are united to Christ in His death, uh, in His resurrection. We are set free from sin. We have power over sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. And this morning, we're going to look at the pattern of the cross. How the cross begins to shape us as a people and shape our inclinations, our intuitions, our evaluations. I'm going to read a quote to you. This is from a non-Christian historian by the name of Tom Holland. He writes, It is the audacity of it. The audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the Creator of the universe. It's the audacity that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization to which it gave birth. It's an interesting observation by this non-Christian historian commenting on two things I think worth mentioning in this little quote here. First, the strangeness of Christianity. I alluded to it last week, if you remember, how odd it is that we pin up to our church buildings or even put on our stages instruments of cruel torture, that we wear them as earrings or put them on our necklaces is somewhat bizarre. And if you were to go back to the first century and do any of those things, we would be weirdly looked at, misunderstood for sure. Christianity is strange. But also he says that there's something about Christianity and something about that looking at the cross and seeing the glory of the creator of the universe there. That it has given birth to a civilization. Those are his words. The civilization to which it gave birth. In other words, this historian's belief is that idea that God coming down from heaven, becoming a man, and then going to die on that shameful cross, he believes has radically transformed the world. It's created a civilization. Think about it this way. Why is it that we measure the greatness of a man's soul by the degree to which he shows compassion to the lowly? Where has that idea come from? Did that come from the Greeks? The historian says, well, that's not how the Greek king Leonidas would have thought. He actually trained young men in his army as they were preparing themselves to fight. He trained them to seek out ways to kill the socially inferior. 
as a way of eliminating that class of people that they didn't want among them. A particular and peculiar form of eugenics. That's not how Julius Caesar thought, who reportedly in the Gallic Wars slaughtered over a million Gallic people and enslaved a million more. Their worldview didn't have any space for showing mercy to the lowly and the unfortunate. Why would you show compassion to the lowest class of people in your society? To do that would make you weak, wouldn't it? To invest time caring for those people at the bottom, wouldn't that make your society, your civilization weaker? Where did that idea come from? The idea that it's actually good and wholesome to invest in and love and show compassion to the lowly. Well, Tom Holland, not a Christian, traces it back to the cross. I think he's on to something. The cross of Christ is something like a big meteor that just landed right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and has sent tidal waves all across the world. That it's touched everything. It introduced an entirely new way to think and to feel and to live. The last week we were talking about how the cross kind of reshaped how we as Christians think of ourselves. We consider ourselves to have been crucified with Christ and therefore set free from sins, dominion, and now free to live in righteousness. That it's our new identity to be in Christ and to be sharing in His death and resurrection. We're not on, as I talked about last week, team sin anymore. You don't have to listen to coach sin He has no rule or authority over you. You're on Jesus' team now. And what He says goes. And anytime the temptations of sin come into your life or whisper in your ear, you can say, no, that's not who I am. I've been set free from that. I can live in righteousness. Now, I want to study what I'm calling the pattern of the cross. I want to actually show that the, the cross of Christ has provided for us a new way of thinking about how we should live. A new way, a new lifestyle. A new evaluation of what is good and what is bad. Of what we should care about and what we should not. What we should value and what we should pursue. The cross actually gives us a new paradigm that changes everything. So think of it this way. Does the New Testament provide for you a pattern of life? The answer is yes. Well, what pattern is that? Well, you'd say it's the pattern of Jesus' life. And I would agree with you. But one of the most fascinating things I found in studying this is that when the New Testament writers are giving you an example of how to live, they point to Jesus, but more specifically, they don't point just to his life in general. They point specifically to his cross. You ever think about that? When the New Testament writers, Peter, Paul, John, are trying to tell you how you ought to live, they point back to Jesus. They say, follow Jesus. But specifically, they say, follow Jesus in his death. Follow Jesus in the way he laid down his life. That's what I want you to do. And so it's, it's bigger than follow him and how he love the crowds and how he fed the hungry and how he taught the masses. It's laser focused on that last week of his life. 
those last hours. I want you to zero in on that. Not that we ignore the rest. Of course we don't. They're in Scripture. We learn from that. But specifically, there's a focus on the cross as a pattern of living. That it reshapes the worldview that we have and gives us new ways to think about what we should pursue and how we should live. It is a pattern of living. In other words, this is the life-changing truth of the Bible, that if you want to follow the pattern that it gives you to live, the place you should look for your example is the cross. The person you should imitate is a rejected, beaten, bloodied, battered, weak, dying man being shamefully humiliated as he lays down his life to rescue the undeserving. That's your model. That's your model. He he doesn't give us Jesus on the throne post-resurrection as our model of how we ought to live. He gives us the coming and the laying down of His life on the cross as the pattern. So this is a fascinating kind of twist of how we often think about things. And I want to unpack and just kind of explore various parts of the New Testament that highlight this. And I think we need to start in 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to show how the cross shapes us. And I want to, our first point is going to kind of be the groundwork that needs to be done. And then we're going to look at some other elements and apply what we got out of 1 Corinthians 1 to these other elements of how the cross shapes us. And our first point that we're going to get out of 1 Corinthians 1 is this, is the cross shapes our wisdom. The cross shapes our wisdom. The cross, the eternal Son of God, humbling Himself to the lowest death, gives us the framework for understanding God's world. You have a worldview. You have a way of evaluating the world. You wake up every morning, you say, this is good, this is bad, I will do this, I will avoid that. These are the things I'm chasing after in life. This is my, these are my goals. This is what I'm going for. You already have those. Everybody does. We're, we're, we're brought up into a society with certain values and certain pursuits and we get caught in that current. We go, get going in that direction. And so we already have a worldview. But here what we get in 1 Corinthians is the, the, the cross actually provides an entirely new paradigm for understanding the world. I want you to start in verse 18. Well, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. I want to kind of unpack it and talk through it as we go. And I'll show you this incredibly important point that Paul is making here. All right, verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, keep staring at that for a minute with me. The word of the cross, the message about what God did through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross is folly to some people and it is the power of God to another group of people. In other words, I think you can notice here in this text that Paul is dividing humanity into two parts, right? You see that? Two different categories. On one hand, you have people who look at the cross and they see that's foolishness, that's folly, that is empty, that's a failure, And that is what the people who are perishing, those who are still stuck in their sins, unreconciled to God, that's what happens when they look at the cross. It's empty. 
It's meaningless. It's foolishness. Why would I devote my life to worshiping somebody who died there? The other category of people that he presents to us is to us who are being saved. Those that God's called, and you see this language of being called to salvation and chose for salvation in verse 26, verse 27, verse 28. God calls some. And to those people who are called to salvation, what is the cross? They look at the cross and see something entirely different. Two people looking at the exact same thing, the cross, the crucified Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, hanging there, dying. Some people say, that's folly. That's stupid. That's not true. Why would I give my life to that religion? And other people look at that same cross and they go, that's power. That's wisdom. That's glory. That's salvation. The difference being that God's grace has opened the eyes of those who are being saved so that when they see the cross, they see it for what it truly is. And then watch what he goes on to, 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 to say here. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. All these people who think they're wise in this world, I'm going to destroy what they think is wisdom. All the people who think they're discerning, they're going to look at the world and they're going to evaluate according to their human wisdom. I'm going to thwart their discernment. God's going to do it in a way that no human being could ever fathom. No human being could ever come up with this method of salvation on their own. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? What Paul is saying is let's gather all the wisest people that we could find. Let's get the wise man. Let's get the sage and let's bring him out. Let's get the scribe, the one who's the scholar, the one who's read all the books and studied everything. Let's bring them out. The debater, the one who can uh, excels in oratory and can impress the crowds and persuade the masses. Let's bring out these people that are esteemed by human society and let's see if they could come up with this. And what Paul says, he goes on, follow with me, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And what he means to say is that the wise person, the scribe and scholar and the debater of the age cannot, in their wisdom, come to know God. They can't fathom it. They can't understand God's ways and God's works and God's will. It is utterly mysterious to them. All their wisdom and their trying to climb up the ladder to understand the world as it is, is abject folly because verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It is God's wisdom that you can't actually come to know God through your own wisdom. And no person, no matter if you're a scribe, no matter if you're wise, no matter if you're the person who can persuade the masses and you're a public figure and you've written books, you are unable. Every human being is unable to climb their way up the wisdom of the world into the knowledge of God. No one can do it. God has designed his world that way that you can't come to know him by your own brain functionality. And by all the gathered wisdom of all the world, if you could collect all the philosophers' works and all the best speeches ever written and all the most studied scribes and you would gather them all together and put together all their accumulated wisdom, it would be utter folly because what he goes on to say here, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God wanted to make the way of salvation utterly unattainable by any human effort, that the only way it could be given is as a gift by God, by His grace, to save those who believe it. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
We preach the Son of God, the Messiah of the Jews who came. That's the Christ. We preach, preach that he came and was crucified on a cross. That's what we preach. And when they preach that, look at what it says that happens. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews, knowing that their Old Testament scriptures taught that whoever was hanged on a tree was cursed by God. How could the Messiah, the one who's supposed to be the rescuer of Israel, be cursed by God? That doesn't make any sense to the Jews. It was a stumbling block to them, Paul says. It's folly to the Gentiles. The whole Greek world, the Gentile world, could not grasp this. They didn't understand it. It's just abject folly. But verse 24 says that to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, so from the Jews and from the Greeks, there are people called to salvation. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see what Paul is doing here. I just want to now unpack this and and talk about it a little bit. He's showing that there's two kinds of wisdom. That there's the world's wisdom that's represented by the scribe, the wise man, the sage, the debater. And then there's the wisdom of God, which is primarily displayed in what? The cross. The cross. And all the human wisdom in the world cannot understand the cross. You cannot shed any light on the cross by human wisdom. But when God opens the heart for us to see the cross for what it is, suddenly we understand true wisdom. In other words, the wisdom that is required for understanding the world comes only as we understand the cross. (laughs) See, the whole world is obsessed with human achievement. You notice this? It's like we're all trying to build a Tower of Babel. Every one of us are born into this world Power of Babel builders. Try saying that ten times fast. Barely made it through the first time. We're just born just trying to seek our own achievements. We're, 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 that's what we do. We, we want to impress people around us. We want to say, look what I have done. Look at what I've built. Look at my life. And many of us go through our entire lives trying to be great to make a name for ourselves, to reach heaven on our own, to say, look who I am. Be proud of me. Look at my accomplishments. And yet, and if you have that mindset, if that's the wisdom that you operate in your life with, if that's the worldview that you use to evaluate everything in your life, when you look at the cross, what do you see? If human achievement is your lens, you see at the cross a very pathetic scene. You see a defeated man. At the cross, you see a failure. At the cross, you see hopes dashed, goals missed, dreams lost. At the cross, you see a man in a movement utterly destroyed. At the cross, you see a flop. At the cross, you see a cosmic botch. You see that. But that is man's perspective based on the lens of human achievement, based on a wrong way of evaluating everything. That's how the world sees it. What happens when you see it with the wisdom of God? Cross suddenly becomes something entirely different. The cross becomes something beautiful. It's not just a mere man on the cross. It's God incarnate. You don't see someone's plan thwarted. You see the plan of redemption being worked out for the salvation of his people. You don't see hope lost. You see hope being fulfilled. Hope itself on that cross. 
The cross doesn't happen because the goal is missed. You see, the cross was the bullseye. That's what he was going for all along. You look at the cross with the lens of the world, you see defeat. You look at the cross with the eyes of faith, the wisdom of God, and you see victory. In other words, it all gets shaped and turned upside down. Man values saving himself, but then you look at the cross and you see that only God can save man. Man cannot do anything to save himself. Man values building up his own life and accomplishing great things for himself. And then you look at the cross, and there we see something entirely different valued. What's valued at the cross is laying down your life. Giving your life away. Sacrificing your life. So there's two wisdoms given here that we can approach the world. Do we look at the world through the lens of human achievement? Or do we look at the world through the lens of the cross? Paul presents the cross as being the way, the pattern for understanding God and the world that He has made. And until you understand the cross, we will not understand the world in which we live. This is God's way of understand, or revealing to us who He is and the world. Okay, so has the world understood this stuff? The world can't get it. The wisdom of the cross is folly to the world. That's what Paul says, because everybody there in the world is evaluating themselves based on what they can achieve. I want you to think about this in your own life. Many of us are giving our lives to trying to make ourselves great. We want to be impressive. So we give ourselves to a career. We try to make a lot of money. We try to surround ourselves with relationships where we feel built up and important. And in those relationships, we want to impress people. We want to make ourselves seem superior or great. We want to be recognized, noticed, complimented. All because we think that human achievement is the point of our lives. We chase after more, more money. More beauty, more fame, more comfort, more opportunities, more fans, more followers, more subscribers, more likes, more views, more money, more clients. That's the wisdom of the world, right? It's telling you, go get it, go for it, claim it, grab a hold of it, get what you want out of life. And it's a scam, isn't it? It's folly, isn't it? To invest your life into those things, if you look at the cross and see what the cross values, and we chase after all these things that are all about ourselves, it's abject folly, isn't it? Remember a few years ago, I was on uh, Craigslist looking for a car. I'd advise you, if you're on Craigslist looking for a car, be very aware that most of the cars are scams. And time after time, you, you look at these posted pictures, they look beautiful. And there's this price that you're like, no way, that's way too cheap for this car. Oh, I wonder what's going on here. You click on it. There's this really sad story there. You know, this used to be my dad's car and my dad died and I can't bear to look at it and so I want to sell it as soon as I can. I just need somebody to buy it. Like, wow, interesting, okay. Look in a little bit further. Well, you just need the money to be sent, you know, send it on ahead, wire the money to this number, and then I'll send the car to you. 
You don't need to come look at it. The car will go to you. And you know, of course, what's going to happen if you wire your money. You're never going to hear from that person again. I remember running into all these scams and going, okay, none of this is real. None of this is real. You just, you're going to, if you try to go that route and you start investing in things that are scams, you're going to end up bankrupt, right? And yet many people are living their lives this way. The world has scam after scam after scam putting out there begging for your attention. Chase after me. Invest in this. Chase after this. This is the bait you, that you really want. If you come after this, this will make your life matter. This will make you impressive. This will make you valuable. This will make you meaningful. If you don't want to waste your life, come this direction. And it's a scam. And what the cross comes in is says, no, no, you want true wisdom. Stop investing in yourself. Chasing after your own selfish dreams. God's world doesn't work that way. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. What is true greatness? It's laying one's life down. It's not investing in yourself and in this world. It's laying your life down for the glory of God and the good of others. We see there at the cross that Jesus laid His life down. And Christians following Him throughout the ages have adopted that same wisdom to lay their lives down. Seeing that that's what beauty is. That's what wisdom is. That's what goodness is. It's not about getting stuff for yourself. It's not about building your life more, 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 bigger, 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 better, better, trying to impress, trying to show you what I can achieve, trying to create a life that demonstrates the greatness of my own intellect or my own power or my own work ethic. No. See, the cross shows that true greatness is in laying your life down for others. The lens of the cross redefines everything. We are people of that cross. The way up is down. The mountain peak of greatness is only accessible through the valley of humiliation. The true pathway to glory is through self-denial, self-abasement, self-sacrifice. That is the wisdom of the cross. Salvation comes not when you achieve all your dreams, but when you recognize that before God you're a rebel, you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you recognize you cannot climb your way to heaven, no amount of human effort can get back to God, and in abject humility you humble yourself before Him and you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then you look at the cross and you see, wow, He is a gracious God. That there at that cross, He put all our sins on His own Son. So that me... This wretch, filthy with sin, can look with eyes of faith to the cross and have my sin transferred to him and punished there and his perfect righteousness transferred to me and I am therefore justified before God. The cross shows us an entirely new value system. It teaches us to value things differently than what the world values. To look in different ways at what is meaningful. In our lives. You can think back perhaps a few years ago. I don't know if you've ever seen the image. It's emblazoned in my mind. The image of those Christians over in Egypt with black bags over their heads about to be martyred by Islamic extremists. You look at those people and most of the world would say, pathetic, right? Dying for this crucified God? Pathetic. But when you look at that with the wisdom of God, what do you see? Heroes. A great example for us. 
be faithful to the end. God evaluates things differently than the world does. See, you look at someone who's never written a book, never preached a sermon, never did anything that great or grand in the eyes of the world, never made a ton of money, but was a faithful spouse. Loved the family he or she was put in. Faithfully served his church in complete obscurity. That's the kind of stuff God values. It's upside down from what the world recognizes. And so here's the cross gives us a whole new way of viewing the world. This is who we are, church. We Christians are so used to thinking like the world, we need to continually stare at the cross and build a new value system around that. What does God value? Now, the next two points are basically taking that paradigm and showing how the New Testament applies it to different facets of our lives. So this next point is going to be how the cross shapes our relationships. So the first one was the wisdom uh, that the cross gives us. The cross gives us new wisdom. Now I want to look at how the cross shapes our relationships. Let's think of the wisdom of the cross applied to relationships. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. One of the things you'll see as you look through all the different passages in the Bible about the cross is that wherever there's new moral directions, imperatives, the pattern is almost always just brought back right to the cross. I want to show you this in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 1. What's happening here is Paul's writing this letter to the the church in Philippi, a church that he loves and he thanks God for. I just point back to verse 27. He wants these people to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that's what he says there in verse 27. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he's encouraging them. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being of full accord in one mind. In other words, one of the ways that you're going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is by living united and in love and in full accord. One mind, this idea of complete harmony and unity in the body of Christ. And then he makes these amazing commands that we we sometimes just brief over so quickly. We don't really sit and ponder them, but I want to sit and ponder them here. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition. How much are you allowed to do out of selfish ambition? It says nothing. What's selfish ambition? Ambition itself is not bad. Paul talks about ambition in other places. He has a holy ambition you know, to bring the gospel to places where it's not gone. But this is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is different. This is like a politician. Actually, the word is sometimes used or is used in first century Greek to describe a politician who's kind of jockeying for power. Uh, he's jockeying for greater influence. And he's doing this by you know, stiff-arming those around him, putting them down, bolstering himself up. That's what selfish ambition is. I want to be recognized. I want to be noticed. I want to have influence. He says, you should do nothing out of selfish ambition. 
And then he has another word there, or conceit. You should do nothing out of conceit. Conceit is the idea of excessive pride. It's the idea of vanity, a bloated sense of self-importance. It's the feeling that you're more important than the other people in the room. You're the most important person in your own family. Everyone else needs to recognize it. Get on board with that. You're the most important person. I'm the VIP. That's what conceit is. It's feeling superior. Feeling that you need to have your needs attended to more frequently than anybody else. Don't have any conceit. You should have nothing done in your life that is drawn from the idea that you are superior, more important, or better than anybody else. should be doing nothing out of selfish ambition. And then he goes on, says, but, but, so, so here's what you should be doing. You shouldn't be doing any of that. But in humility, lowliness, count others more significant than yourselves. Christians should embrace the lowest view of themselves. So low that they consider all others as having more value and significance than they do. Verse 4, he goes on. Let each of you, every one of you, God speaking to you right now, you need to apply this to your life. See it in the text. This is God speaking to us. Let every one of you, Grace Rancho, each one of us, each one of you, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You have interests, don't you? You have things you're concerned about, right? You're looking out for them. But those are not the only interests you're supposed to be looking out for. Are you only looking out for your own interests? Because here, the Scripture's telling us that we should be looking out for, and this is an active thing, right? We are to be pursuing an understanding of the interests of others so that we can look out for them. Let's put together this radically transformative instruction. We are to never, highlight that word, never do anything out of selfishness, out of ambition, that we are never to be promoting ourselves out of vain conceit in pride or self-importance, but rather we should be concerned about other people's interests and other people's struggles and other people's problems and other people's needs, other people's questions. We're helping those questions get answered. Okay. How do I do that? That is weighty, isn't it? Who among us is living this way? I mean, this is a heavy call on our lives, a high calling. Watch where Paul Anchors this. Watch this. Verse 5. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christians, this is the new mind, the new way of thinking that you have been given through Jesus. Holy Spirit now lives within you. You have a new way of processing, a new way of evaluating the world. This is now your birthright as a born-again believer, a son of God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself. 
Taking the form of a servant. What's that? That's called the incarnation. The eternal Son of God becoming a man. Taking the form of not just a man, but of a servant or a slave. Being found or being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. Watch this. To the point of death. Even death on a cross. Sometimes... We separate verse 5 to 11 from verses 3 and 4. Or we look at verses 3 and 4 and we talk about being humble and not doing anything out of selfish ambition and not having any conceit and counting others as more significant. We, we don't attach it to what Paul attaches it to in verse 5 to 11. You see, the only way that we could understand what it even means To count others as more significant than ourselves and to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit is by looking where? The cross. That's where we learn how to live for others the way he's describing. That's what it looks like. It's to say that my model for all my relationships to count others as more significant than my own, my own life, my own interests. It's to count them as more important than me. It's to not have a bloated sense of self-importance. And to what degree am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to do that like Jesus did it. And though He was the glorious Son of God who deserved nothing but praise and honor, He humbled Himself. He became a man. He became a slave. And to the point of death on a cross. That's how low he went. That's our pattern of relationships. Isn't that incredible? You want to learn to relate to the other people in this room? Try acting that way toward them. Try actually believing this is true. And and by the way, look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The true humility is always responded to by God with exaltation. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble. He lifts up the lowly. Those who humble themselves, God values that. The one who humbled himself more than any other person has ever humbled himself is Jesus Christ. That's why He gets the highest position. And to those of us who follow His lead and humble ourselves, God sees it, and He will exalt in due time. Usually in heaven. This is the shape of our relationships. This is the way we ought to live. In other words, the Christian ethic is this. I am eager to serve you, so eager in fact, that even if it costs me comfort, even if it costs me my honor, even if it costs me my reputation, if it costs me my very own life, I'm giving it. I'm giving it to you. We ought to look around at the brothers and sisters in this room, and without romanticizing it, say, I will die for you. Perhaps even more powerfully, I will live for you. This is the model. Who can do this except those who are helped by divine grace? we got to humble ourselves before God and say, the calling is beyond me. Who is sufficient for these things? I need your grace. See, some of us, we, we look at this standard We say, this is so unreachable, and so we politely excuse ourselves from being under this obligation. 
what we should do is fall on our faces in humility and say, God, I can't. Only you can in me. I am called to do nothing for my own selfish desires. I am called to have the lowest views of myself. I am called to count others as more significant than myself. But I am prone every morning to wake up only thinking about Eric Durso's problems and his interests and his needs. I need grace. I need God's grace to turn around my focus so I can recognize I'm here for Him. I'm here for His glory. I'm here for His people. And live in relationships where I put myself at the bottom rung and I say, I'm here to serve. Who am I here to serve today? How can I cultivate their faith? How can I encourage them and do them good? Who's got burdens that I can bear? That's the pattern. That's the pattern. I remember reading a story about one of the the professors at the Master's University that always struck me. I think I've told this story before, but it really fits well as an illustration. Uh, He was writing in a chapter of a book about how to pray. And the point he was making in this part of the chapter was how he learned to pray by observing his father. His father was kind of the, the pattern that he learned to pray after. And he, was, he wrote this in the chapter. He said, as a child, I would find my father either reading his Bible or praying very early every morning. A fellow missionary told me of an occasion when my father was not well. And yet each morning, his office light was on at 4 a.m. And one day, the missionary asked him, why don't you sleep in later in the morning, try to get better? And he replied, because I have too many things to pray for and I can't afford to sleep in. Here's a man, even in his sickness, and he's not feeling well in the body, feels obligated and pulled to get out of that bed and begin praying for God's purposes and for God's people. He begins pouring out his life for them. He had too many people, too many things to pray for. He couldn't stay in bed. His, the needs of the people that he loved we're outweighing the need and the desire to stay in bed a little longer every morning. I mean, God, would you pro- provide for us those types of devotional commitments to each other, right? That we would have this desire and compulsion to move toward others in such a way that we say, if it costs me sleep, if it costs me energy, if it costs me money, I understand that the pattern I'm following is Jesus who laid his life down. What will it cost me? I want to give it. Drawn to do this. Drawn to face discomfort because of the needs of others. I know you pray for yourself. How frequently are you praying for others? I know you have burdens. How frequently are you bearing the burdens of others? Who are you serving? Who are you carrying around in your heart? This is the pattern. That others are to be considered more significant than ourselves in everything we do. In everything we do, we don't go after our own interests. We are caring for the interests of others. If you want to get really convicting, we can think about this very morning. How did we do getting ready for church this morning? 
Counting others' interests is more important than our own. In the conversations we had on the way here, how did we do? Or maybe even getting into this room and choosing where you were going to sit. Whose interests were on your heart? Or maybe when the songs began to be sung, whose interests and preferences were you considering? Perhaps some of us were sitting here thinking, well, this isn't my favorite song. I prefer different styles. But whose interests are we supposed to be preferring? Or maybe after the service is done, we're tempted to just get out and escape as quickly as we can. But maybe there are some others who are right around you this very morning who actually have some burdens that need bearing. Whose interests are you concerned about carrying? The Christian ethic is always die to self. Don't live for yourself. Consider others as more significant. Act like Jesus going to the cross and saying, where are the burdens that I can bear for those I love? And ask God for divine help. Okay, so that's how the wisdom of the cross is applied to the relationships that we ought to have here. Here's a third point. The cross shapes our love. It shapes our wisdom. It shapes all our relationships. We put ourselves at the bottom. And the cross shapes our love. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. This is another one of those verses that are so easy to just read through without pausing and considering what is being said here. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Therefore, be imitators of God. How are you doing on that one this morning? Imitate God. I I don't know if there's a more impossible command in all the Bible. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And then, one of the ways that we are to imitate God Verse 2, and walk in love. Okay? Walk in love. But Paul's not going to leave us there, remember? He's always going to bring the imperative back to the pattern. And what's he going to do here? Walk in love as Christ loved us and what? Gave himself up for us. What's the pattern for our relationships? It's Jesus on his way to the cross. What's the pattern of the way we love? It's how Jesus gave Himself up for us. The, the pattern of the cross becomes the pattern of our love. This is very much tied to the previous point, but I want to highly, uh, I want to focus on it so we can reflect and meditate on it more deeply. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You could even take a look at 1 John. 1 John has a lot to say about love, but I love what he says in 1 John 3.16. He says, you can just listen to me say it, it, by this we know love. You want to know what true love is? By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I love how when the New Testament, especially John in the letters of 1 John, are going to describe what love is, they don't pull out a dictionary definition. They, do, they, they point you to an event. Okay, you want to love, let me show you what love is, is go look at that cross. Go look at the Son of God laying His life down for us. That's your pattern of love. When he gets to husbands, describing how husbands ought to love their wives, what does he do? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and 
gave Himself up for her. In other words, the pattern of love is always pointing back to what Jesus did on the cross. It's an event. Now, I want to just highlight real quick the, the difference between the world's understanding of love and what we're talking about here, this Christian love. The world's understanding of love is all kinds of backwards. The world's definition of love, I'm going to use three words to describe it, and I'll unpack what I mean. It's transactional, it's emotional, and it's optional. This is, the, this is the way that the world kind of demonstrates love. It's transactional in this way. It's transactional in that we typically treat people as, uh, or our relationships as transactional relationships. I will love you if you love me in return. I will give to you if I can get something out of you. I want approval, and if I am being nice to you, gets approval from you, I will be nice to you. I will love you. I'll be committed to you so long as what you do in response is equal to what I've given you. That's a transaction. I'm going to invest in the people who make me feel good. I'm not, I want to make sure I get something out of these relationships. It's also emotional. It's emotional in that we think love is a feeling. Love is some spontaneous event we can either fall into or fall out of. We talk about it that way. We just fell into love. Like you fell into a hole. Like you fell into a sewer. It's like the same language that we use. It's It's... This emotion just sleeps upon us. We can't control it. Nothing to do with it. It just comes upon us. And so then, because we think love is a feeling, we also then think it's something optional. So we say it's transactional. I'm only going to give what I get. It's emotional. I can't really control what I'm feeling at any given moment. And therefore, it's optional. I can choose to love you or choose to withhold love. I can choose to be committed or withhold commitment. It's an option for me, and I have the freedom to choose who I'm going to love and who I'm not going to love. That is how the world thinks about love. And that is opposite, the opposite of how the Bible describes love. I'm going to give you three words that describe biblical love to counter those words. Biblical love is unconditional, practical, and committed. It's unconditional in this. There's no conditions you must meet to have my love. I'm going to require nothing of you to love you. I'm just going to love you because God has loved me, and so I am going to love you. There are no conditions. It's practical in this sense, that it requires action, it requires work, it's real, it's tangible, it's not just an emotion. In fact, when you look at the text, love is most clearly demonstrated in an act, in what Christ did. It's not merely an emotion you feel. It is action, it is investment, it is proactive, it is work, and it is costly. And it's also committed. It's committed because it's commanded. Think about this. Is love commanded of you, church? The answer is yes. Love is commanded of you. Beloved, let us love one another. That's an imperative. You are called to love. You don't get to choose whether you'll love. You don't get to choose who to love. You are called to unconditional love because that's what the love of Christ is like. It's not conditional on whether we earned it or deserved it. It's practical love. Our love is active. Our love is pursuing. Our love goes after people to meet their needs. Why? Because that's exactly how Jesus loved us. He came, died for us, and rose again that we might be reconciled to God. And it's committed love. When is Jesus going to be fed up with us and let us go? Like how many sins till we get to the end of Jesus' patience? There are no number of sins. Jesus' commitment to us is perfect and eternal because it's based on the finished work of the cross. It's a committed covenant love. God will never leave us or forsake us. That's the love that we are called to imitate. So our love is without condition. It's 
practical and active, and it's committed. By the way, does love work really well without commitment? To withhold commitment, to say, I'm going to give you everything else, but I'm not going to commit, is basically saying, I'm not going to give you everything. I'm going to withhold from you. I'm going to keep for myself, going to tuck it in my back pocket, uh, the option of walking away if it gets too hard. We leave out commitment from love, it ceases to be biblical love. And this is why marriages, if you only have feel, this is, this is why so many marriages are struggle, is because they have the transaction going, it's like you make me feel good, I make you feel good, we're going to stay married. They have the emotions going, and so they're willing to stay committed. But they have, you know, if those things all go away, if I don't feel love anymore, if you're not meeting my needs like I wanted you to when we got married, if suddenly you're not all the, not all, you're not able to do all the things I hoped you would be able to do, well, maybe I can walk away. Does an escape clause help the cause of love? No. This is, this is why Christians, when we go to love, we say, no conditions, I'm going to work for this, and I'm going to be committed through thick and thin, till death do we part. This is why, by the way, Grace Rancho, as a church, we practice church membership. We believe that part of the way God calls us to love one another is to make commitments to one another. So we're not wanting to be a people who say, Christ has loved me, but I'm not going to be committed to anybody. I'm going to hold myself back. No. We're going to follow Christ's lead and love one another as He has loved us. And so we're going to say, look at how God has saved me. Look at His mercy. And He has brought me from outside and He's connected me to a family. And this family, He planted me in on purpose that I might imitate His love that I've received from Him now with these people. And so I'm going to go all in with unconditional love. No one here has to meet my requirements. I'm going to be actively pursuing ways to love you. And I'm committed. You can count on me. I'm not leaving if it gets hard. There are some people who approach church with a willingness to give so long as something is given in return. A willingness to invest so long as it's really fun and exciting. If any of those things start to go away, there's a great church down the road. I can just go there. Start all over. What about commitment as an aspect of love? Isn't that part of the way that Christ loves us? I want to ask you, for those of you who continue consider yourself regulars of Grace Rancho, whether you're a member or not, you come regularly, is your commitment here based on your own comfort or on your calling to love? Do you attend here because it provides a level of comfort for you? There's people like you. You like how Michael leads our singing. You like the quaintness of it all. Reminds you of your old country church growing up. It's comforting knowing that here you can be known and have relationships with people. Those are all great things. I'm not knocking any of those things. What if next week there's a revival Amongst the, gang, amongst the gangs around here, and the drug addicts all get saved, and they start flooding Grace Rancho. 
And here we have flooding into our church. We're being inundated with people with significant issues trying to shake their addictions. What if the church grows and it's not as quaint as you liked it to be? What if leadership starts choosing songs that you don't really prefer? What if just in general relationships just get more challenging? If your commitment is based on the comforts you're receiving from being here, you'll probably leave. That's not biblical love. Biblical love is calling-based. Calling-based. I have been loved, and I am called to love as Christ loved me, which is unconditional, which is practical, and which is committed I love because it's a calling, not because it's a feeling, not because I get something out of it. And so I am going to be unreservedly, sacrificially, and completely committed to these people. Our love ought to express itself in commitment. Just like a marriage covenant does. There was an article some years ago in The Atlantic that got my attention. The author James Fallows was bemoaning the deterioration of the U.S. Army. He said that ever since the draft was abandoned, the Army has been less potent, powerful. The the willpower to fight in those soldiers has deteriorated. And he described his theories as to why. He said during the draft, men were called to duty, They were prepared to fight. The draft felt something like a calling. You were called into this thing. And then you were given preparation. You were taught submission and loyalty and bravery. And there's a sense of pride in this calling to serve your country and to go lay your life down for it if necessary. And then the draft was removed. And it was all recruitment and volunteer-based. Our army became volunteer-based. A volunteer force. And so men mainly begin to join out of self-interest. They would ask the question, what's the pay going to be after I'm out? What is the potential lifestyle I can get after this thing? What are the retirement benefits? In other words, the pride in the work itself began to fizzle away and the army itself became weaker because those joining weren't have, didn't have a sense of call They joined because they were trying to get something out of it. Some people commit to a church this way. I will join insofar as I can get something out of it. What does it do for me? What can I learn here? And it's good to ask some of these questions. I'm not saying it's not. But what is the basis of your commitment Is it a calling to love as Christ has loved us and laid down His life for us? That is the pattern that we are called to love one another. The cross shows us this, that our love should be calling-based. It is our happy calling. We are to be good soldiers who follow our King Jesus and follow the pattern of His life and His death And we commit to each other unconditionally, practically, and lay down our lives in commitment to others and their good. This is the pattern we have to live by. 
you're not a Christian this morning, I'm glad you're here. I wonder if you've looked at the cross and seen your own need of sin forgiven. Your own need of your guilt to be removed. God is holy and He looks upon you and your sin and He sees someone in desperate need of salvation. And if you don't turn to Christ and trust in what He's done on the cross, God will righteously judge you for your sin. The Bible says that the wrath of the Father is still upon you so long as you're neglecting to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so, so to flee the wrath to come, God has provided a way of escape and that way is the cross. And once you turn to the cross by faith and receive the free forgiveness of sins, now you pattern your entire life after that. You get a new way to live. And we as a church want to live that way with you. We want to pattern our lives after the cross. If we do this, what will it look like? I think it will be a million different little things. We'll be much gentler in our words, much quicker to forgive, eager to jump in and serve, eager to give generously to the Lord's work, all imitating our Lord. It also could be big things as we pattern our lives after the cross. Some of you might want to move across an ocean and lay down your lives for an unreached people. And some of you might want to move closer to your church to invest in people more strategically. Or you might commit for the first time to a people and choose to lay down your life for them and for their good. But if we pattern our lives after Jesus' cross, we will likely not get any approval of the world. We certainly will be misunderstood. We will be considered weak. We may be considered foolish. We may be thought of as ignorant. But that will be only because the world doesn't understand the wisdom of the cross. Dying to self is the pathway to life. Humility is the path to greatness. Sacrificial love is the path to glory. And the cross shows us how to do all these things. Let's pray. Father, we ask that Your Holy Spirit grant us the wisdom that is profoundly displayed in the cross. We ask that You would teach us to look at others through the wisdom of the cross, counting them as more significant than ourselves. We ask that You would work in our hearts to help us to love as You have loved us. And Jesus, as You have laid Your life down for us, we humbly confess that we've failed in so many ways. We praise You for the grace not only forgive our failures, but to strengthen us as we try to obey again today. Work in us this practical ways to begin applying this even today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.